Leviticus chapter 20. Let's begin reading with verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Again thou shalt say to the children of Israel, Whosoever he be of the children of Israel, or the strangers that sojourn in the land, that giveth any of his seed unto Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. And I will set my face against that man, and will cut him off from among his people, because he hath given of his seed unto Moloch, to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do in any ways, do anyways hide their eyes from the man when he giveth his seed unto Moloch and kill him not, then I will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut him off and all that go a whoring after him to commit whoredom unto Moloch from among their people. Now then, <clears throat> there are several things that we need to uh, read and understand <coughs> in this chapter. And by the way, there are portions of it we may not read, but I'll give you at least a summation of various verses. But these verses 1 through 5 tell us of the sinfulness of worshiping other ways than God-directed ways. And of course, God says that He will cut that soul off. And if you want to know the penalty that's found in Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 11, it was to be by stoning. They would stone that individual to death. So God is very jealous about His worship. He doesn't want people to worship in their own ways, but in the ways that He has directed. In verses 6 through 8, and we'll read that passage, And the soul that turneth after such as have familiar spirits and after wizards to go a-whoring after them, I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among the people. Sanctify therefore yourselves therefore and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. And ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. Now, God considered Israel to be married to Himself. And to worship other gods or to go against God was to be uh, really uh, committing whoredom or adultery against God Himself. If you want a reference, turn to Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 32. Jeremiah 36. Let's see if I have it right. Jeremiah 31, verse 32. I got it wrong. I thought I might have. 31, verse 32. It says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers <coughs> in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although, now look at this, I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. So he considered himself to be married to Israel. And he was legitimately their, legitimately their husband. And so he states that there are several passages in Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verse uh, 2 is 
as well, if you care to turn. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, shows how that they separate themselves from Him. So, to turn to false gods and then to turn and after those in verse 6, back in our passage in Leviticus 20, verse 6, uh, those that have familiar spirits and wizards and so on, is to, of course, uh, uh, do that which God has commanded not, not to be done. And uh, no one is to to uh, turn away from God to seek wizards or uh, witches or familiar spirits or fortune tellers or people that use those things, enchantments, diviners, and the whole mess of them is mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. And that comes down to this modern day too. You know, we have these carnivals where people go into fortune tellers and palm readers and all this kind of stuff. Well, to tell you the truth, there's only two kinds of those people in the world. One is after your money, it can't tell you a thing. And the other is devil-possessed and after your soul. And so those two you want to stay away from. And whether they're after your money or after your soul, it's still not a thing for a Christian to do. Don't fool with them at all. If God wanted to know you, wanted you to know the future, He would have told you. And He tells us of future things in His Word, but these are prophecies of what He's going to do. But as far as your personal life is concerned, He doesn't tell you what's going to happen today or tomorrow or the next day. And it, it's probably well for us that we don't know. Because if we knew, we'd fear a thousand deaths before we come to the first one, wouldn't we? To one. I think Spurgeon mentioned, why, why die a hundred times before you die? <laughs> and so, just wait till it happens and it'll be in God's hands. Don't worry about it. Let God take care of it. And that doesn't mean you should go out here and, and deliberately do something that would end it shortly before it's time. Just because God knows doesn't mean that you're not responsible for your life because the Bible says that our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which we have of God. It says, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So uh, teaches us that you know, you're to take care of yourself and to consider your life a real, real precious thing. And God will uh, bring you to the, to the proper ending of it. Uh, you know, Job of old says, all the days, listen, all the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. So you speak of, of life and the beginning of it and you live it, you wait, you serve until the time comes that He takes you on. So uh, there's a lot of things we can learn. This next verse, verse 7 says, Sanctify yourselves therefore and be ye holy for I am holy. So verses 6 through 8, we just read the whole of it. In verse 8 it says, And ye shall keep my statutes and do them, I am the Lord, which sanctify you. You know, the word sanctify means set apart. 
or separate yourself. It, it never contains the connotation of, of a sinless life. Just because you're to be sanctified, you're to be set apart to God, but it does not mean that you're going to be sinless. Now, a lot of people have read that into it, and uh, just because God said, Be ye holy, for I'm holy, and said, Well, that, that means that you'll be sinless. It doesn't mean that. It means you're to be set apart to God. And there are verses of Scripture. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 3, I'll give you a verse or two. And it says in in verse uh, 13, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So God wants to set us apart to himself for a perfect purpose personal reason that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now, in chapter 4, while you have that, look in chapter 4, it says, in verse 7, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. So God's called us unto holiness. He set us apart to be holy like He is holy. And it doesn't mean sinless. First Peter chapter 1, if you will, let's read verse... Uh, 15 and 16. It says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That means you need to be devoted to God in your walk of life, in your whole life. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Verse 14 goes right in hand with that. It says, As obedient children not fastening yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. So you're to be different now than, than you were before. So we're to be obedient children and not fashion ourselves like, like we lived before in our ignorance. But as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy uh, in all matter of conversation in your whole life. <clears throat> Back in Leviticus now, if you will, chapter 20. And uh, when you read verse uh, 6 through 8, you'll find uh, the sinfulness, of course, that we've already mentioned it, of seeking fortune tellers. And you also have the uh, encouragement to set yourselves separate and apart unto God. In verse 9, you'll see the sinfulness of cursing father and mother. For everyone that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He hath cursed his father or his mother, his blood shall be upon him. That shows us the sinfulness of doing such thing. And God demands the highest respect for parents and for parental authority. And He wants that even today. Even today, God demands the highest respect for parents. And I know that in some uh, some households, we do not have that highest respect. But you look in the book of uh, Ephesians, chapter 6, I believe. Ephesians, chapter 6. 
And I'll give you what these verses say. Ephesians chapter 6. Notice it says in verse 1, <coughs> Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now notice, for this is right. It's right to do that. It says, Honor thy father and thy mother and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Of all the Ten Commandments, this one contains a promise of long life upon the earth. You say, well, I've known uh, children that have gone out of this world who honored their parents. Well, certainly all of us have. There are exceptions to the rule. We don't know when sickness or or, uh, death will take any of us. Or accident or whatever. But we do know that God respects those children that honor their parents in the Lord. And uh, of course, uh, if you had a parent that was uh, trying to bring up a child in an ungodly way, notice that phrase. It says, honor thy parents in the Lord, in the things of God, and those that are in the Lord. But if you had a very ungodly parent and you were a child in that family that uh, didn't want to go that way, certainly there comes a time there will be a division. We don't know when that time would come. But parents are to be responsible too, aren't they? And therefore, it goes on down to say in uh, verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So where children have that kind of a family, they certainly are to honor their parents. And that's the kind of family they should have too. And so there's much sinfulness attached to the thought of of uh, dishonoring parents and God in the Old Testament he, he wouldn't put up with it he said that they would be certainly put to death and you'll read in the rest of these verses verses 11 through 27 back in the book of Leviticus you'll find all kinds of uncleanness and sins of filthiness And this chapter deals with those sins in particular, and I'm not going to read them all uh, because I think uh, it would be well if we move on to the 21st chapter. But this chapter deals with all those kinds of sins. And it would be better read in private probably, much of it. So we'll bring you over to chapter 21, if you will. And we'll talk more about that. Because in chapter 21, we find the thought of who can serve as a priest. Who's going to be able to serve as a priest? And let's begin reading with uh, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say unto them, There shall none be defiled for the dead among his people. But for his kin that is near unto him, that is, for his mother, and for his father, and for his son, and for his daughter, and for his brother, and for his sister a virgin, that is nigh unto him, which hath no husband, for her may he uh, be defiled. But he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people, to profane himself. 
And it goes on to tell about uh, baldness and cuttings in your flesh and many things. Verse 6 says, They shall be holy unto their God and not profane the name of their God for offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God they do offer. Therefore, they shall be holy. And it tells their restrictions of taking a wife that's a, a harlot or a, and uh, different restrictions about bread. In verse 8, Thou shalt sanctify him therefore, for he offereth the bread of thy God. He shall be holy unto the Lord, for I the Lord which sanctify you am holy. And so he goes on and gives a lot of directions. And we'll just comment on these verses uh, as we go along. The sons of Aaron were traced by birth. They were traced by birth. And they all stood in this relationship to Aaron and his sons, the uh, Levitical priesthood. And the priesthood was not a matter of attainment. It was a question of, of uh, progress. And it was a question of the fact that they were born priests. And was a, a connected with their pedigree, their genealogy. They were born priests. And their capacity to understand and enjoy their position was a different thing. They need to enjoy it, enjoy it, and one might be uh, like a baby and need of milk, and another might be more mature and need of meat. But both were members of the priestly family, and we have that in the church today. All believers are priests, and some are like babes, and some are like more mature Christians. Remember, Paul spoke to the Corinthians. He says, "I cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, for you're yet babes in Christ." And he talks about them quibbling one against another. He says, Are you not yet carnal and walk as men? And you'll find that in 1 Corinthians. I believe it's the third chapter. But anyway, we find that he does deal with them as babes. And then uh, you go on and find out in Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 5 where... Uh, uh, Paul said, and I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, and a lot of questions and people deny that, but I think the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. But on the other hand, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, he says, <clears throat> For when for the time you ought to be teachers, listen carefully, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. In other words, you need to go back and learn your ABCs in the Christian realm. And he says, for you, you are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. He says, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But he says that strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even uh, them who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so he tells us that the strong meat belongs to the more mature Christian. And he's able to digest it. You know, you start feeding strong food or solid food to a baby, and they, that's not the best thing. But when they begin to grow, they're able to mature and be able to get their teeth in their mouth and be able to chew food. I remember my children when they were fed that baby food. There's some of it they liked and some of it they didn't like. And I, can't, I, I can let you imagine what happened to that they didn't like. And I don't have to teach mothers about that. 
And you better stay out of the way. I just, I'll just throw that in. But uh, we know that uh, you need to grow up as Christians. And that's what Paul was saying in Hebrews 5. He's saying, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again. He says, You're still like babies. Now then, picture, picture a five or six year old, or eight or ten, still on the bottle. Still on his mother's breast. You'd say, That's not good. Wouldn't you? Because by this time they ought to be growing. Well, picture that same picture as far as Christians are concerned. And what do you see? You see an overgrown person that's still on the bottle. And you know why we have that in so many churches? There, are, Of course, there are many reasons. But one reason... They don't get enough food at home or in the church. Sometimes they don't read their Bibles and feed upon God's Word at home. Others won't come to the house of God and be taught to and be fed upon the Word of God. So no, no wonder they're weak, spindly, immature Christians. And that's what we have in the world today. That's what we have in churches today. And by the way, you cannot grow by coming one Sunday in three months. You can't grow that way. How would you like to figure that if mother fixed all the meals and you came to the table one one time a week or one time in ten days, I mean you might be very hungry and you might be very weak too. Because you need that food to sustain this physical body. And you need spiritual food to sustain your spiritual life or body. And if we could get that through the head of folks, we'd have them in church every service, wouldn't we? Because they'd say, well, I can't miss that meal. And a lot of them miss out. And you know, usually the service that a person misses is the very service that they needed most of all. It's like old Thomas, you know. Jesus appeared to the uh, disciples many times before He appeared where Thomas was there. But Thomas was not present, it says. And finally, when he was present, he asked for Jesus to do something he'd already done. He said, I want to see the place in His side. And I want to see the place in His hands. Well, Jesus had already revealed that to others. But He wasn't present. So the very thing he needed, he didn't get because he was not present. And uh, you'll find that true in many cases. So their capacity to understand and enjoy their position, these priests, was a different thing than them being uh, in their position that they had by being born priests. And that's the capacity we have too. And uh, another... One might be a baby, another more mature, but both were members of the priestly family. And we have all Christians today are members of the priestly family. And some enjoy that position more than others. And all believers are priests. Every believer is enrolled as a member of Christ's priestly house. It says, whose house are we? And 
Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, and 1 Peter chapter 2. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2, and you'll see. And we've been over it time and time again. It says in verse 5, it says, Ye also are as lively stones, we're stones in a building, are built up a spiritual house, but this is a living house, it's God's house. We're talking about being in God's family. And holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Ye also, and it's believers. Uh, in verse 7 it says, Unto you therefore which believe He is precious. On down in verse uh, 9 it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And it goes on to say, Which in time past were not a people, the Gentiles. This passage is taken from uh, the book of Hosea, I believe. In fact, when it was referring to Israel... But they were not. We were not a people in times past, the the Gentile believers. But it says, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So he takes the same scripture that was applied to Israel of old, and their being away from God, and applies it to Gentile believers who were not a people. Until they believed, and now they became the people of God. So, <coughs> the believer may be ignorant of his position, but his position does not depend on uh, knowledge, but on birth. He may not know much about his position. You know, there's a lot of believers today that do not realize that they're really a priestly family. When I tell people that you in the pews as the believers are just as much a, a priest as I am. I'm a preacher, but I'm a priest in my own right as a believer. Yeah. Not as a position in the church. And by the way, when you apply that to the churches across the land, see where you get. Because a lot of them claim to be priestly in various denominations. And they are in their own right, but they're not above the people because all the people are priests. And that's why people can't get through their thick skulls sometimes around the land. You know, you, you heard this argument in various denominations whether they should ordain a woman as a priest I've got my question right under that what gave them the right to make a man a priest right they have no right to do that they have no right to make a man a priest let alone a woman so the argument's not between men and women the argument is whether or not they, any should be a priest except as a believer but they all are in that respect. All believers are. So, let's get the record straight. And God ordained the preaching and teaching ministry. He said He's made some 
pastors, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And by the way, people are really mixed up on evangelists too. You know why? It's not a fellow that goes from one church to another holding a, a so-called revival meeting. That is not an evangelist. In the true sense of the word, an evangelist is a missionary. That's what an evangelist is. He does missionary work. And now we're letting it get so far out of hand that we're going to have evangelist so-and-so in our church. Well, it's true in a sense he's going from place to place and serving as a missionary, but not like the Bible teaches a missionary. And Paul told Timothy, as a pastor of the church, what? Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. In other words, you be a missionary. You go out into the highways and hedges. You do the work. A missionary work. That's what he told Timothy. And there's only one other place that you find that commission given. Evangelist. So, you take that word and look it up in the New Testament, you'll come up with a different idea if you just study the word. We all to be evangelical as far as the preaching out to other people of the word of God. Pastors and teachers and deacons and members and all. And any who will volunteer to go to a home mission or a foreign mission to work wherever you may work in the Lord's work, that's evangelistic work because you're declaring the Word wherever you go. But the titles is what I'm talking about. The title. You turn to Let's see if I can find the scripture in Ephesians for you. Ephesians chapter Four. Now let's look at it beginning with verse 11. It says, he, And He gave some apostles. We know that they're, they're gone. And some prophets. There were New Testament prophets in the sense that they foretold things, but most of them, the prophetic word was their preaching and edifying ministry. And some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, there's two more places that the word evangelist is mentioned. One's concerning Philip the evangelist, and the other's what Paul I just quoted to you, where Paul told Timothy. Uh, in Acts 21, verse 8. Acts 21, in verse 8, you'll find that Philip is called the evangelist, an evangelist. And you'll see what he was doing. And the next day, we that were Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven. Now, what had Philip been doing? He was going everywhere preaching the word. 
That's why he was called an evangelist. And then that other one that we gave you concerning uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> and these are the only two other places you find the word evangelist. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. And it says <clears throat> in verse 5, But watch thou in all things, endure, afflic- uh, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. And that, that other, that's the only other time besides the one we read in Ephesians. So there's three places. Two references to that, to that position that uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians that God uh, ordained to be. Some evangelists and teachers. Now then, when we get right back to the, the thought that we had earlier about going from one church to another, it's true that a preacher who goes to other churches does do evangelistic work, but everyone that goes out and like a missionary work does evangelistic work. The pastor is to do it. The members are to do it. But it doesn't mean that uh, that uh, that's the only way that you or only person that you call evangelist. It really basically referred to those that go to a new field and preach to different groups of people uh, out in the missionary field, whether it be home or abroad. Now then, you say, preacher, that's not what I've heard all my life. I didn't expect it was. But let's go on with this. So every believer is enrolled as a member of Christ's priestly house, and the believer may be ignorant of his position, as we said. The believer did not work himself into this position, he was born into it. And by the way, we're born into it too. And by, uh, right along with that, we're saints of God too. This is something that's misunderstood greatly. We're saints here and now. Right in this world. To all that are saints. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and so our brother unto the church of God. Now look. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth. The church was a local church at Corinth. Now look at this. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That means they were set apart. The word we've been talking about earlier. And it says, uh, call to be saints. Now you have your Bible open. Notice that word, call to be. Notice the word to be is in italics. You see that? That means that the King James Version translators added those two words. Sometimes it makes good sense. Sometimes it helps. But if you take it in the wrong way, it may not help. So it says, call to be saints. What does that mean? That we can become saints? No, it says, call saints. Leave the word to be out. To them in Christ Jesus, call saints. 
Those in Christ are called saints, aren't they? To all, with all that in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So, it doesn't mean that we have to do something to become saints. It means we're called to be saints. We're called to be that because that's what we are. And that, that's the reason the word can help if you take it in that way. Or it could distract if you say, well, it, that means we have to become saints through some process. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that we are. Every child of God is a saint. Now, every, every child of God may, may not be saintly, and many are not. Most of us are not. When we think of the term as we might think of saintly, you know, all collies are dogs, aren't they? But all dogs are not collies. Right? So you have to make a distinction. And so the distinction is made sometimes in our lives, but still, all of them, all collies are dogs. But anyway, that may be a poor illustration. But let's get back to this and see that we are all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And as such, we're not only saints, but we're priests. We're priests and we're saints. And that's what we're doing, talking about this priestly family back here. And so all of us get into Christ and His priestly family in identically the same way. But some enjoy it more than others do. And that's why we're talking about the development of it and the use of it and how that they progress in their saintly office. And nothing could break the relationship between Aaron and his son. Many things could and would interfere with their fellowship. You know, fellowship is a different thing. Aaron's son might defile himself by touching the dead. Remember, that was restricted. Or by, by an unholy alliance. Or with some bodily blemish. You'll read that context and you'll find that they could not have blemish. And with blindness or lameness. Or by being a dwarf. All of these things were taken into consideration in, verse, uh, in various verses of this Scripture. And any of these would interfere with his enjoyment of the priesthood and the function of the priesthood, but it would not mean that he was not a priest. When you read in that passage in uh, 22, you'll find that they are highly honored as priests of God and must not be slaves to things of the world. He says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be ye separate, be sanctified. And the priests are continually employed in sacred service. If a priest pollutes himself, he's profane. He profanes the name of the Lord. That's what we do. That's why the Bible says, uh, You're bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. If you go back to... Context in verse seven, you'll find that we're we're talking about uh, some things there in the twenty-first chapter that are very delicate to read about. But 
we find to do what it says here would bring reproach upon their ministry. These ungodly unions take a wife that is a whore or profane or this wasn't to be. To do so would hinder their testimony. Ministers' wives are to be grave and sober that the ministry be not blamed. Preachers' wives are to be that way. My wife one time, she said, I'm not a very good preacher's wife. And I said, Honey, you are a good preacher's wife. She said, Well, I'm not like others' preachers' wives. Some were outgoing and this and that and the other. That, that's not what makes a preacher's wife. What makes a preacher's wife is to be faithful, to be true, to be virtuous, to be godly in those things that are required. And to me, I said, you're the best one I know of. And I said, don't measure yourself by others. And by the way, I don't measure myself by other preachers either. Because they're what they are and I am what I am. Some of them, you know, they'll say the big preacher got up and preached. The one from the big church. Well, so what? There are big churches and there are little churches. There are middle-sized churches. There are big people, there are little people, and there are middle-sized people. There are slim people and there are heavy people. All kinds. But they're all individuals in God's sight. And God loves each and every one and He wants us to be an individual before Him. And then anytime you start trying to mimic someone else, you're going to get out of place. And if you'll be yourself, you'll be the best testimony that you can be. If you try to be someone else, you'll ruin it. And uh, that's just the way it is. So, they, these that were married to the priest were not to bring reproach upon their ministry by being the wrong kind of a person. And as we said, ministers' wives are to be grave and sober that the ministry be not blamed. And that word sanctify, we must honor those that God puts honor upon. That's verse 8. In verse 9, in this same chapter, we have uh, other things that are brought out. In verse 9, her sin is greater because it brings reproach to the priest. Her punishment is greater because so as to be a warning to all other priests' daughters. And I'm just giving you the comments on these verses. Verse 10, more, to, more was expected from the high priest than any other priest. And more is expected from, was expected from Jesus than any other man, and He fulfilled all the expectations of all. He did everything right and holy and godly. And verses 10 through 12, or 11 through 12, I should say, 11 and 12. A dead body, defilement by. The priest's natural affections covered up intending the household of God. There must be nothing that would keep the priest from attending the sanctuary of God. Verse 13 and 14. And as you look at it, this was to put a difference between him and the rest of the world. 
what you read in verse 13 and 14. In verse 15, 16, and 17, as you're glancing at that passage of Scripture, blemishes did not keep the sons of Aaron from being sons, but it did keep them from offering the bread of God. Verse 18 says, For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach a blind or a lame or, or he that hath a flat nose or anything superfluous. A blind man. What about a blind man? The blind man couldn't see where to place the bread of God. A lame man. He might stumble and the bread of God would be defiled. The lame man would be unable to carry a very heavy load. He could not walk straight. Movement for a lame man is difficult or impossible. And the lame man is ineffective and insufficient and ineffectual and unsound. Now, you're talking about these things that were physical there, but we're talking about a person that's lame in his walk as a Christian now. How can he do the things that he should do as a Christian? We're not talking about the physical lame now when you apply it to the New Testament. We're talking about these things that... Remember our, remember our principle of the Old Testament, our rule... What did we say? The physical and material what? typifies, picturizes, and symbolizes what? The spiritual in the spiritual in the New Testament. And that's what we have to consider. So these physical things in the Old Testament are pictures of the spiritual in the New Testament. Now then, that's why we're talking about the lame man. Jesus healed the lame man. By the way, if we're lame in spiritual ways, He'll heal our a spiritual lameness too, won't He? And make that better. And then a flat nose. What did flat nose mean? Unable to smell the sweet savor offerings? Unable to smell if the bread of, of God was stale? 